Why don't you open your Bibles up to 2 Timothy, the second epistle, the second epistle of Paul, the apostle to Timothy, 2 Timothy. If you need a Bible, there's one provided under one of the chairs in front of you, near you, uh, or you can look on uh, with your neighbor, but everybody needs, everybody, listen, you need to be looking in a Bible today. Uh, also, you need a study sheet. That'll help you a lot. The ushers are in the aisles waiting. And so just raise your hand. I'll get one to you. Don't be shy. Uh, no problem. You're in a safe place. Just raise your hand up and you get their attention and, uh, and they'll get you a study sheet. All right. Well, if you're a guest with us, we're uh, in an ongoing study of the, of the Timothys. We finished 1 Timothy last year. Uh, we started 2 Timothy in the fall, and uh, we're working our way through it. We've made our way uh, through chapter 1, chapter 2, and we've made our way up to verse 15. The title of today's message is God's Use of Similitudes. Yeah, that's a big word. Uh, our springboard text is 2 Timothy 2, 15a. And the reason I put the A there is because uh, of the first word in verse 15, which is what? Study. And it's the King James Bible is the only Bible that has that word in it, all the other versions, English versions of the Bible. And uh, I would bet uh, other languages have removed that particular word. So um, this whole issue is uh, really important about studying and studying the Bible. We talked about the whole verse last week, and I uh, did an exposition of that, uh, of that verse and laid it all out for you. But uh, what we want to do is just kind of take a break from our uh, expositional study of this book and just kind of magnify that, that word study. And so we're going to be talking about, uh, for the next uh, several weeks, methods of Bible study. And then this, of course, is part, part one. So please follow along as I read the opening paragraph. God desires to communicate to mankind. Isn't that good news? And at this time in human history, we interact with God. Uh, he talks to us through His Word. We talk to Him in prayer, but we interact with Him by faith, not sight. And yet His desire to reveal Himself to us remains. Therefore, God meticulously preserved His words in a completed book, the Holy Bible, for us to read and study, study, so we can know for a certainty His plans and purposes. Now, it's a big book containing books with tens of thousands of words and divisions. It's a book that is, according to Psalm 119, that is forever settled in heaven. And that means that the Scriptures will not be added to or subtracted from ruling and directing the affairs of the Lord throughout all eternity. Isn't that profound and amazing? Genesis to Revelation, this book is going to use, God's going to use it as it is. Now, what language it's going to be in, I'm not sure about that. But I know right now I have it in English, and I speak English. That's incredible. It's forever settled in heaven. It's no ordinary book. It is the book 
of books. It's still the number one selling book and has been uh, since it's been printed in uh, the King James Version in 1611 and all other versions of the Bible. Still, it's still the most uh, popular uh, sold book and requested book on earth. Therefore, it requires our full attention. Today and in the weeks ahead, we'll examine methods and rules that will help us understand what God has clearly written. So, really, we're camped out on this word study, but I'm going to read the entire verse. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And this verse should be committed to memory by every, every Christian. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'd give me uh, clarity to speak today and that uh, your Spirit would illuminate all of us, that I would be out of the way. And I I know you choose at this time to use preachers, human instrumentality to, uh, to preach your book, teachers to teach your book. But, uh, Lord, I do pray I'd be out of the way, that it wouldn't be uh, me today, but that your Spirit would bless the reading and study of your Word this morning. And I pray you'd be magnified. And I pray, Lord, that people would, uh, would love the words in your book. They'd love to hear your voice, even though they can't audibly. That they'd love what you say and that they'd believe it. And today would strengthen their faith, the faith of every Christian here. And if there be anyone lost here in this room, that through the things we're going to look at today, that they would would know that they need to receive Jesus Christ and that they would do that this morning. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, today in part one, we're going to examine, number one, the most common form of teaching and learning. It is the most common form of teaching and learning, and it's the use of similes, the use of similes. And this effective form of teaching is, of course, employed by our God throughout Scriptures, and so we want to look at God's use of similitudes. And if you don't know how to spell that, I did it for you in the title, God's Use of Similitudes. Uh, Hosea 12, verse 10, actually uses the word. Uh, the prophet says, I have all, or is talking about uh, the Lord is actually speaking to him here, and he says, I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions and used what? similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. Uh, In Hebrews chapter 7, speaking about uh, uh, Paul is writing here, and he's speaking about uh, uh, a priest from the Old Testament named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, he's a very unique priest who met with Abraham. And uh, Melchizedek is a simile of Jesus Christ, and some actually believe it was a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. I happen to be one of them. But nonetheless, this Melchizedek uh, is a simile or a likeness uh, of Jesus Christ, to be sure. Uh, and it says, and, and it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest, talking about Jesus Christ, who is made not after the law of carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. That's Jesus. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever 
after the order of Melchizedek. Again, a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ, and we see the word similitude used there. It shows up, the similitude, or in its plural form, shows up 12 times throughout the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testament. I wanted to give you two verses for each. So if you follow in your study sheet, thank you, Keith. If you follow in your study sheet, the most common form of teaching, the issue is the similitude. The most common form of teaching is by association, contrast, and comparison. A good teacher or parent understands this method of teaching and employs it continuously. And so do all of you here. You all use this method of communication. And when it comes to a parent or a teacher, there's often no other way to answer a child or a student's question other than by a simile or a similitude. The use of a similitude, here it is, is teaching something that is not known by drawing a comparison or contrast to something that is already known and understood. And again, we apply uh, this method uh, in our regular communication. All of us do. You know, it's like, uh, see this? Uh, Well, it's like that. And we all talk that way, and we all communicate using similes. So, A, now B, I want you to consider this. God desires our faith to grow stronger. Do you believe that? And, and it does when we hear Him, when we, when we respond to Him, we read the Bible and we respond to Him by faith, we grow stronger. But you know, the truth is God speaks through creation, doesn't He? I mean, you've got to look around creation, and you look around at, at, the, at night, you know, the last couple of nights have been crisp and clear and you can look up into the into the sky at night and see the stars and you know you ponder the vastness of the universe and how small the earth is in comparison and and you look around at all the things the beauty the beautiful things that God has created and and everything on the earth uh, there are beautiful things i mean it's hard to deny that there there's not a designer behind all of this incredible stuff I mean, you start looking at animals and how different animals are made and how they fit in the ecosystem of birds, creatures, fish, uh, uh, you know, fish in the sea. Look at us and look at just the human eye alone. I mean, it's much more complex than any uh, supercomputer on earth. So, uh, you know, we would look at a supercomputer or anything, even like a watch, my watch, I mean, We know somebody had to design this and someone had to make it. It just didn't happen. There wasn't a factory with all of these components in it and then there was a ginormous explosion and then out of it came this product. That's ridiculous, isn't it not? It's completely ridiculous. So when we look around in creation and they think it happened somehow out of a large explosion... With all these details, yeah, right. So God speaks to us as we look in creation. The book of Romans chapter 1 says that. That we can even see the Trinity, or the Godhead, by looking in nature. And you start studying nature, and it's really strange how things really break down into a series of threes. And quite incredible. And so He speaks through creation. How many of you know He speaks using that still, small voice from within? 
Huh? Amen to that. You know, when we're praying or when we're going through life, sometimes, you know, we're unsure. Is that my conscience or is that the Lord? Boy, isn't it nice to just ask yourself that question? You know, I mean, isn't it? Wow, man. So the Lord speaks to us. But here's the problem with that, with both those things, creation and that still small voice. It's very general. It's not specific. And, and we need to know things in greater detail, like our origin, where did we come from, and, 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 the, and the history of Israel and how they fit into the plan of God. Uh, how about how to get saved, salvation, and, and, and what we do after we get saved, doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction and righteousness so we know that we're doing the things that please God. We need greater details. Therefore, the Bible is the primary way God communicates to us. It must be. It's the only way He can get the information that we need to us. And then we can respond by faith when we read the Bible, believing what God said. All this stuff requires the Bible, these details we need by necessity. By necessity, it has to come in the form of divine words preserved for us in a book that could be passed on or else we're just clueless wandering around making up our own concept of God. And that's what religions do without the Bible. They just make things up and they're, they're being made up out of the human heart. And we know that the human heart is corrupt. I know mine is. Uh, uh, how, what's the words of the song we sang? Uh, Though vile is he. The, 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 the thief on the cross, though vile is he, we are just as vile as him. And so we can't trust ourselves, so we need a record. Now think about this, and this is your next point. God's truth is spiritual, heavenly, and eternal. Man's understanding is carnal, earthly, and temporal. Now, I really want you to think about what I'm about to say. Therefore, the book he wrote and preserved, it's going to sound odd to you at first, but you need to think about this. It must be layered it must have a lot of facets to it. it, it it's got to be like a, a smart object, like, um, like uh, our phones today, or a computer, or software, or things that are connected that we, uh, that we use to operate other things. There's got to be more to it. Things, a smart object, there are things that contain assets and details that are embedded deep within, and, and that's in addition to that which we see on the surface. Layered like an onion or, or, uh, or like a, a, a Rubik, uh, uh, something that has multiple functions happening all at one time. And if it was done any other way, think about it, if it was done any other way, with all the information, I mean, this is a big book. Would you guys agree with that? But all the details that we want and all the details that we need, in order for him to provide us with that, we'd have to lug around volumes and volumes and volumes of books. 
And then that would make it unavailable to common people. And it's common people who hear him. It's, look, are there rich people that listen to God? Sure. But according to the Bible, not many. And as we look around, we see that's true. And, and are there poor people that love God? Yeah, there are. But not many, according to the Bible. It's common people. It's the middle person. It's the common man that hears him gladly. And so, you know, did you ever hear somebody say, or maybe you even said it before, I did back when I was unsaved, why doesn't God, if he wants me to know that, why doesn't he just say it specifically? How many of you have heard that? Yeah. Okay. Well, then that's on the subject you're dealing with at the moment. Oh, let, let's pick out another million subjects that we could say that about. Are you tracking with this? So in order for him to do that, he'd have to have volumes and volumes and volumes of books, and we'd never be able to figure it out. So he put it in one book so the common man can possess it and know God. See, God loves us, and he desires to communicate truth to us, but he also wants to communicate love to us. And he placed, when you receive Christ as your personal Savior, he placed his, his spirit inside of you permanently. And it's his spirit that inspired the writers of this book. And it's his spirit that's preserved the words in this book from generation to generation. Just think, the author and preserver of your Bible lives inside of you. So therefore, we can know the deep things of God. He's built the Bible, not like the Bible code or some weird mysterious thing where you need computers and all that to figure out. No, he put it in English and he layered it in such a way to where it's got everything that you need. Everything. Uh, everything that has to do with life and godliness is found in the pages of this book. Uh, this book, as I've said, is settled forever in heaven. He's going to use Genesis to Revelation to run his affairs for all eternity. So you know there's things we haven't seen in here. This is a, a well that never runs dry. This is a mine that's never tapped out. And if, if you have a great need and you draw near to God and, and you get into his word and you look at it and you're searching for an answer, you'll find it. He'll give it to you. Because it's not just truth. He loves you. And right now, those that saw him rebelled against him by sight. And so he made, a, he, he made a decision. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in eternity past decided that they were going to have a special plan and make a special creation. And that special creation would ultimately live by faith. See, we can't see God right now. Boy, some days I wish I could. <laughs> and some days more than others. We can't see God right now. And that's the way he wants it for now because he gets more glory that way. He says, look at those people, my people I love. They're responding to me and they've never seen me or heard me. Wow, isn't that incredible? Now, they did see and hear Jesus Christ, and he was here for a short time. 
But the point is, this book is really important. And, and therefore, God communicates to mankind by starting with things that are written in this book, but by starting with things that we already know and makes a comparison or contrast with the things we don't know so we can learn more about Him. And using this method and other methods that we'll talk about in the weeks ahead, a vast amount of truth and love can be communicated from God to us through the pages of one book with chapters, verses, and lots and lots of words. Does this make sense to you all? I hope so. I'm working up a sweat trying to explain it. (laughs) So, you need to ponder that in what I just said. You need to think about these things. Don't just go on in your daily life. Everything you got to take care of in life is important. Your job, the people you interact with, uh, your school, wherever, whatever your lot in life. You, we need to have rest. We need to have fun. It's okay to have fun. It's okay to have fun. Boy, I didn't have fun watching the Browns yesterday. I didn't have any fun with that. It was painful. You know, it's just one of those things. I know when, when we were praying for our, when we were eating our dinner, I said, Lord, I don't want to pray for the Browns to win. I, I just think that that would be too odd. But maybe. <laughs> yeah, and I don't, I, you know what, we all have very important prayer requests. Some of you have the last name of Brown. By the way, thanks, Jake, for leading the music tonight. Jake Brown. We got the Browns over here. We got Brown, people with the last name of Brown. So we, we pray for the Browns all the time. <laughs> but ponder what I just said. Don't get caught up in all the stuff and forget what is the most important things. See, that leads us to this foundational understanding and something we need to identify, and that's the two concerning the subject of similitudes is the two most important words in the Bible. Are you ready? Drum roll. The words are like and as. Like and as. You see, in similes, these prepositions, like and as, they function to express that something is similar to something else rather than directly equating one to another. Like appears uh, in 581. Oh, the drum roll didn't work. I got them right there, don't I? Uh, Like appears in 581 verses. I didn't have time to count uh, how many in, in each verse, but 581 verses throughout Scripture. And as appears in uh, 2,872 verses throughout Scripture. And they're not always used as a preposition and a simile, but their use is widespread. Now, these words open up the Bible and not only increase your understanding of God and His book, But when you do this, now think about this, when you employ this type of method, when this happens, you're learning more about God, you're seeing more about His Word, you're seeing these, this, how His Word is layered because He's, he, he's the author and he, he knows the beginning from the end and with Him, time really doesn't, isn't a factor. And so He paints pictures and He, he, he communicates in, in, in a way only He could. This is no ordinary book. And so when you, when you employ methods like this, what happens is your faith grows in the Word of God. You trust it more. 
You trust what the Bible says, and, and it increases uh, your, your, your spiritual growth exponentially. Uh, Romans ten seventeen says, So then, faith, the kind of faith God's looking for, cometh by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. And right now we live in a time, uh, thank you, Keith, we live in a time prophesied by Amos that says there's a famine in the land. And it's not a famine of bread, nor of a thirst for water, like we would think, but of hearing the words of God. That doesn't mean there's a shortage of Bibles. It doesn't mean there's a shortage of God's words. It just means there's a famine of people hearing God's words. And this little method will help you hear God's words. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend the rest of our very limited time today by looking at some common examples. And I'm not really sure if we're going to be able to look at all of them. And so the ones we can't look at, that will be your homework class. Uh, You'll be able to go figure these things out. All right, so turn to Matthew chapter 24, and we'll pick some very common things that uh, are easy But this is everywhere. You see how many times like and as are listed in your Bible. So they're everywhere. Everywhere. All right, so let's pick up in verse, uh, let's see here, 37. Oh, uh, we'll pick up in verse 36. Uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples about the end of the world. You know what? Let's go back. It's not my notes. Uh, uh, look in verse 3 of chapter 24. We'll get some context going here, which is another method or rule of Bible study. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming when you return again, and of the end of the world? Question mark. And now chapter 24 and 25, he's answering that question. That's the context. Do you get it? All right, so we come to verse 36. But of that day when he returns and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only, verse 37. But you can know some things about it. As the days of Noe were, so also shall the or so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. He's talking about His second coming. It's going to be as the days of Noah. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, this business as usual, not even thinking about the end coming upon them. Sound familiar? Until the day that Noah entered into the ark. So now we know who uh, no, he is. And, and think about this. Um, other modern versions of the Bible correct this error. And they'll put Noah in there. Now, I like Noah because that causes me to be interested in who is Noah and why does it say Noah? Well, uh, first of all, if you're reading in the Old Testament, his name is Noah. Peter uh, evidently wrote his name in in Hebrew when he wrote his epistle because it says Noah there in English. But uh, in the Old Testament, it was written in Hebrew and then it was translated into English, which we come up with the name of what? Noah. In the New Testament, the name is uh, in Hebrew that was translated into Greek. Don't ask me what it was. I don't remember. And then in English, it comes out, Noe. 
So that's why your King James Bible lists the names of prophets and Old Testament characters like that in an unusual way. And it's because the King James translators used a literal method of translation. In other words, uh, they were honest in their method of translating because they didn't want to monkey with the words. They said, you know, it comes out that way because we're translating it from Hebrew. In the Old Testament, it comes out Noah. But in the New Testament, we're translating it from Greek, and so it comes out Noe. And so, you know what? I think we should just keep it that way since we're afraid of God and we don't want to change or manipulate His words. And, and when you have to make a sentence complete, they said, well, we can't just translate that perfectly, literally, or it won't make any sense, so we've got to add some words. Oh, my goodness. But, Lord, it, 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 we're translating into another language. You know, we've got our Spanish-speaking friends, soon-to-be members of our church here, and you know, uh, Eric and Paulina, that the words don't translate exactly in a sentence they, because they're connected, they're constructed differently. And so you know what the King James translators did? Every single time, every single time they did it, they were honest and they put it in italics for you. Nobody else did that. And you say, oh, oh, so then the italics aren't the Word of God. Well, Paul wrote to Timothy, as we study all scriptures given by inspiration of God. And so, you know what? My copy, I take it, all of it. Italics, noe, all of it. All right? So what we have here is a description. We have a description. Oh, uh, wait a minute, verse 39. And knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Hmm. So we have a description of the times and events concerning the second coming of Christ found in Genesis chapter 5 through chapter 9. So now if we look at it that way through that simile, that the use of the word as, it's as in the days of Noah, the Son of Man is going to be just like that. We can go back to that, and we can learn a lot of things. We can learn additional things that we don't learn anywhere else in the Bible. God reveals this through this layer that He gives us because of the word as. So turn back to Genesis chapter 5, and watch how this works out. Now, this is the great funeral chapter in the Bible. He died, and 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 he died. It's the funeral chapter in the Bible. It's the death chapter in the Bible. And it just shows that God never intended for man to die, but because of sin and the entrance of sin in the world, now death comes upon all men. Now, let's pick up here in verse, uh, let's see here, verse 18. And Jared lived in hundred, this is the uh, generations of Adam. So it lists Adam's lineage who all died, by the way. And Jared lived in 160 and two years and he begat Enoch. And Jared lived after he begat Enoch, 800 years, uh, there wasn't the same um, messed up gene pool and pollution and toxins, and people lived longer. 
And he begat Enoch 800 years and begat sons and daughters. And that's how the earth was populated back then because people lived a long time and, uh, you know, ladies, man, ladies, sorry. <laughs> you know, can you imagine? You know, yeah, I had 67 children. <laughs> but you'd have been built, you know, stronger, so, you know, more healthy. So you, you could do it. It's not in my notes, I'm sorry. <laughs> Verse 21, And Enoch, uh, and all the days of Jared, verse 20, were 960 and two years, and he died. And Enoch lived 60 and five years and begat who? Now, what do you know about this guy? Come on, somebody. He's the oldest guy in the Bible. Look, if you go on and you read on down in verse 27, and, the, and all the days of Methuselah were 960 and nine years, and he died. He's the oldest man, 969 years he lived. He's the oldest man listed in the Bible. So go back up to verse 22, and Enoch, or verse 21, and Enoch lived 60 and five years and begat Methuselah. So Enoch lives for 65 years, which is relatively young at that time, and he has a son, and he names him Methuselah. And what's odd about it is his name, more or less, uh, it means it's coming. And it, it's presented in such a way, it, 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 the best that historians and entomologists can figure out uh, in the definition and the history of words, that it's, it's as if it's coming. But it doesn't mean like another baby's coming, or your birthday is coming, you know, or your new car is coming. It's coming. It's on order. No, no. It, it's like an arrow that's flying right at your chest. It's coming, and it's not good. So he names this kid, it's coming. Well, that's, that's odd. Well, not so odd. Hold your place here. Please hold your place here. We're going to come back. Go all the way to the end of your Bible to Jude. And if you're not familiar with where Jude is, just go to the last book, Revelation, and it's the next book on the left. It's a one-chapter book, the general epistle of Jude. All right, Jude, Jude 14. And Enoch, oh, there's our man, clear back here in, in the Bible. He's in the first book, and he's pushing right up against the last one. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, and if you go back to Genesis chapter 5, you can see he's seven generations removed from Adam. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. Uh, that's Revelation 19. That hasn't happened yet, by the way. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, he didn't know all of that, or maybe he did, but doesn't appear that he knew it. Verse 15 to execute judgment upon all and convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And then he goes on to describe that. Jude does. Now go back to Genesis chapter 5. Verse 
So Enoch had no idea when the Lord was going to return, if it was his first or second coming. He had no idea. He's looking around and looking at how corrupt and rotten the world is, and he's a, now all of a sudden he's preaching that the Lord is going to return with ten thousands of his saints. And, you know, being seven generations removed, I guess that would be possible, but he's prophesying about multitudes and multitudes, millions and millions of people returning with Jesus Christ, with, with God to judge the earth. And so he, he has this son, and he names this son, it's coming. This judgment he, that we just read is coming. And, and look what's interesting in verse 22. And Enoch walked with God, what's the next word? After he begat, it's coming. 300 years and begat sons and daughters, a relatively young man. So something happened in this man's life. He's walking along in his life, probably just doing everything, eating, drinking, and, you know, and watching all the stuff going on around him and without a care in the world. And it seems to me, with the words that I'm reading, and I'm, I believe the words, it seems to me that something happened in this guy's life that changed his thinking. Something took place in his life. He was going one way, and something happened in his life that caused him to look another way, to look heavenly. He had a transformation that took place in his life, and he has a son, and he names his son. It's coming, and he walks with God. Now his life appears to be different. Boy, that's what happened with you and me, isn't it? Isn't it? And those of you who got saved later in life like I did, almost 29 years old, man, I was gone my own way, and then something happened. Uh, the living God intersected my life and changed my life. And now I, from that point on, and I'm a sinner, and, and I'm not perfect. I'm not trying to insinuate that. But from that point on, from July 2nd, 1989, I've been walking with God. Verse 23, and all the days of Enoch were 360 and five years, a relatively young man. Verse 24, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Hmm. There's a man who has a transformation in his life who starts to look heavenly as he thinks about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. His life has changed. He has a son. He names his son as he's looking at all this junk going on around him, and he says it's coming. Judgment is coming, and he becomes a preacher of judgment. And then all of a sudden, before that judgment happens, he's raptured from the planet. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Yeah, that's a premillennialism right there. <laughs> and we believe that here because that's what the Bible says. This man was raptured from the planet prior to judgment. Boy, thank God we're going to be raptured prior to the tribulation period. But we can look around and see these same kinds of things happening, can't we? Wow. And Methuselah lived after he became begat Lamech, 700 Lamech, and he begat 780 in two years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah were 960 and nine years, and he died. 
So before judgment comes, a man gets saved. He preaches the coming of the Lord in judgment. He pleases God. He walks with God. Hebrews says he was translated. That means he was changed in, from one form into another. He got a glorified body, and he's raptured, and then judgment comes upon the earth. And if you track it, and I, and I have, and many of you have, it appears that as soon as Methuselah dies, something happens on the earth. It starts to rain. Now, personally, just my opinion, but I believe as they were standing around looking in that hole at his body, it started raining on him. I just think God does things that way. That's only my opinion. But nonetheless, when he dies, it starts raining. We know that. And the flood came. Interesting. See, when judgment and tribulation comes, the only means of salvation is for you to get in. You got to get in something. You got to get in the ark. You got to get in that ark, or there's no hope. And it's just like us with Christ. You better be in Christ, or you're going to perish. So, now, we'll talk next week about types. Now this ark becomes a biblical. We're not making it up. It's not allegory. Well, I think, well, I think that that means this. No, we now have a perfect, clear understanding that that ark is like Christ. Do we not? I'm not making it up. It's biblical. During this worldwide tribulation, a man, Noe, Noah, and his lineage are preserved during the tribulation, there's another group of people in their lineage who are going to be preserved, the nation of Israel. And a close study of Genesis chapter 5 through 9 will reveal great minute details of this future event. Everything in there. Oh, and it's freaky. See, afterward, the earth is cleansed after the flood. Sin and unbelieving, unrepentant sinners are vanquished from the earth, and the earth has a time of rest and recovery, just like the millennium. And countless, countless minute details can be learned by studying Genesis 5 through 9, and I'm just showing you some of them in a very brief time. We could literally, we could take just this issue and talk for 12 hours about it. Believe me, I could talk for 12 hours. You just got to need a sandwich or something, you know. A little bologna sandwich with some lettuce on it, and I'll be, a couple of those, I'll be fine. Countless details. And do you know why, how we get those countless details? Because of one little word, as. What do you think of that? Look over in Luke chapter 17. Well, we're not doing too good for the rest of these illustrations, are we? Luke 17. Well, we won't, we won't go back and look at this. Boy, I'd like to. Whew. Well, I'd like to. Now we're going to look at a guy named Lot. And this is another description of the time and events concerning the second coming of Christ. And now here we get even more additional events that are not detailed anywhere else in Scripture. Look at it in verse 28. Oh, I've got to get there. Likewise, uh, speaking, that's another word, like, but like is in it. 
uh, they just talked about what we saw, Noe. But likewise, also, as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. In other words, again, it's business as usual. They're unsuspecting that judgment is coming upon them. And, and you can find this whole story in Genesis 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19. That's a lot of information. And those, give, those things give you details like you can't, you can't even imagine or comprehend and, and details you don't get anywhere else in the Bible unless you study those chapters as it was in the days of Lot. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, verse 29, it rained what? Fire and from heaven. That's the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and that whole area. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Wow. In the time of Noe, water came up from the ground. I said it started to rain, and it did rain. The Bible says that, but it came up from the ground and then came back down. But it first came up from the ground. You can check that out. Because of rampant sin. And in the days of Lot, fire came down from heaven and caused destruction because of rampant sin. Same. And you know what's awesome? God promised never to destroy the earth by water. And how do we know that he promised us that? Rainbow. Now, you think about that. You take that for granted. But you think about that, if you were living near that time, or even a thousand years after that, when people were passing this story along, 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 just think how, what a blessing a rainbow would be. Now we look at it and we go, oh, that's so beautiful. But just think of them. Anytime it would start to rain, anytime it rained after the flood, do we need to build, you know, now it's do we need to have a bomb shelter. Then it was do we need to have an ark. I mean, think about that. Just ponder that. Anytime it would rain after that, they'd be terrified. We're going to perish. Oh, no, no, no. We got an, a rainbow. No, no, he promised he's not going to do that. And look, he, there, you see that? Oh, okay. And, 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 and people have been, their hearts have been so calm from that time that now we don't think the earth is going to be destroyed that way. Even people that don't know anything about the Bible or rainbows. And isn't it, uh, is, it's no coincidence that the gays and, uh, and lesbians have taken that as a symbol. They're trying to steal that from God and make a mockery out of it. That's a whole other story, isn't it? But it fits in with this story. Fits in with this story, I tell you. See, uh, the cultural saturation and acceptance today of homosexuality, lesbianism, and perversion of all kinds, they were all gone on at this time in history. You can read about it. We won't take the time to do that and go back into Genesis. I wish we could. The, 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 the natural love of parents and children are skewed on both sides and perverted. Think about this. Think about this. Uh, and again, this is dealing back in Genesis 13 through 19, but you go back and read this story, and, and, and you see how that, was, that whole area was destroyed. The Dead Sea's there now. It's terrible. It's the lowest place on planet Earth where you can stand. 
Not, not the lowest place counting oceans, but where you can stand, this very area is the lowest on planet Earth at the Dead Sea. What, what a testimony. But think about this. Most Christians and pastors today do not believe in a literal hell. Is that true? It is true. They don't believe in a damnation and hellfire. Well, a loving God wouldn't do that. Most pastors and so-called Bible teachers ignore that type of judgment. They don't ever talk about it. Therefore, Christians today are completely ignorant concerning impending judgment and hellfire, just like Lot's family ignored it, just like the population at that time ignored it, just like today. It's just like today. Lot's family leadership was terrible as he allowed his family to live in that cesspool. And even when they escaped judgment, he didn't properly care for his wife especially or his daughters. Now, they were, she was raptured, as it were, and you know what? She got a garment that was white as snow. You're laughing. She did. That tells me something about her. It's what happens to a lot of Christians that are disobedient to the Lord, where they'd rather live in this world. Oh, they'll get raptured, all right. Yep, raptured. Praise the Lord. She was raptured, as it were, as it were, up the mountain, up out of harm's way, and she turned white as snow, didn't she? Pillar of salt. Went to heaven and failed in her mission, like a lot of Christians. Yeah. Yeah. And then fathers, let's study Lot as a father. And the, the, the daughters, oh, listen, like fathers and husbands today, by in, in general, I'm not talking about you guys here, I'm just saying, or, you know, there's good people, we know of people of other churches, and there's good people in the world as far as the world defines it, but by and large, that men are terrible, ungodly leaders today in the world. Just look at the commercials that you see. I mean, the husband's always a dope, dopey chump. Just check it out. You know, you know, back when I was a kid, he was, you know, masculine and the leader, and now he's like, you know, every, he's the chump, and the kids make fun of him, and moms makes fun of him. She's got the better job. I'm not insulting a man if his wife's got a better job. I'm just saying that men are just, they just cowards. Thank you. Kind, countless minute details can be learned about the return of Christ by studying Genesis 13 through 19 that you won't read anywhere else in the Bible because of one word. What's the word? As. As it was in the days of Lot. Okay. Ephesians. Let me look at what's ahead here. I'm going to have to make a choice. All right, let's beat up on husbands and wives. All right, Ephesians chapter 5. Why don't you turn there? Ephesians chapter 5. Well, I'm not beating up on them. I'm getting beat up too. 
Ephesians chapter 5. This is the uh, anchor chapter in the Bible about relationships and especially about the relationship between a husband and a wife. I want you to see this. Uh, verse, uh, uh, well, well, we'll start it off by giving a little bit of grace to everybody. Verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God, and that's how that should all work. We should be submissive to each other. Uh, in the fear of God. Verse 22, wives, there's the accursed S word, ladies, sorry. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, not to men in general. Uh, your own husbands, whoop, there we go, what? As unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even, there it is, as Christ is the head of the church, and he, your husband, is the Savior of the body, or Jesus. Which one are we talking about? Jesus, the church? Yeah. Okay, watch. Verse 24, therefore, there it is, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in, it doesn't say everything, it says in everything. Now, this is a room of people that knows what that means, I hope, Right? That's every little thing, every big thing. That's everything. Not everything in a broad statement, but every little thing, every big thing, every specific thing. It's two words. All right, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives even, there it is, as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, and not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives, what? As their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man yet ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even the Lord, the church, for he members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Quoting from Genesis chapter 2, this is a great mystery. And remember, the mysteries of God are revealed in the Word of God. You can know them. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Huh. It's a picture of a human marriage or vice versa. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Wow, lots of instructions in there. In there. And uh, we have a, I think, I, I, you know, and I know I say this a lot, but I say it to emphasize the reality of it. We could spend 12 weeks on this chapter and talk about this. And, and this likeness of as and all of this stuff. This same passage here now opens up the entire Bible for devotional and doctrinal patterns and teachings concerning marriage. Because Christ is God, right? And His people in this age, the church, His people are, are His bride, and in the Old Testament, well, you don't see Christ uh, specifically. We'll talk about that next week. Uh, you don't see Him specifically, but you see God, and you see Him relating to His people. So now we have, our whole Bible becomes, as we see God relating to His people, and His people relating to Him, and, and we see Christ relating to the church, and His church relating to Him, we now have instructions on how we're to have a marriage between a husband and a wife. The whole Bible becomes that kind of book because of this word, as. Devotionally, we learn how a husband is as Christ and his wife is like the church. 
And this helps us in so many endless examples. A husband is to love his wife the way Christ loves him, unconditionally and sacrificially. Look at it in verse 25. Uh, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church, comma. How does Christ love you? Unconditionally. What one word describes it? Unconditional love. And gave himself for it. That's sacrificial. That's Christ. He loves you no matter what. No matter what you do, Christian, he loves you. You don't have to walk around with your head down low. If you do, it's because of sin or you lost the assurance of your salvation. But you can look up because your husband loves you. He loves you unconditionally, and it's sacrificial. He put himself in front of you and paid your price for sin, and he's still looking out for you every day, every day because he loves you. He's looking out for us in ways that we don't even know, that we pass by every single day, day after day after day. There's things that happen in our life that God is looking out for us, that Christ is looking out for us, and we we don't even realize it because we're not paying attention, and I'm one of them. I want to pay more attention to that this year. Amen? Wow. Boy, that's how husbands are supposed to love their wives. Just like that. Gentlemen, you think you don't understand your wife because she's a woman, and let me tell you, I get it. (laughs) Right when I think I got Linda figured out, or my daughter's figured out, I realize I go all the way back to kindergarten. I just don't get it. I really don't. I, 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 you don't think like us. You, 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 you don't. You, you don't see things the way that we do as men. And it's frustrating for both of us, isn't it? And you think, why would, why would you think that way? A woman... And guys are like, what's wrong? Well, remember, you were made, ladies, from that part of a man that protects things, that protects the vital organs. You came from a rib. We came from the same material that the beasts of the earth came from, the dirt. So now we can go back and look at that. And you go back and look at how men and women were made. Oh, my. And you know what you see? Something incredible. Adam is called the, sec- the, the first Adam. Jesus is called the second Adam. And here this guy who walks with God, who knows God, who God loves, the object of his love, he goes into a very deep sleep. And in the New Testament, death is called sleep to a believer. And out of his deep sleep comes a bride. That's what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Oh, he was dead. Dead, dead. But the Bible says when believers, they're dead, they're dead. The body. And when he arose again, he got him a bride. Oh, I mean, this just goes on and on and on and on and on. Let me ask you men this in a practical way. Does Christ force his will upon you, force it on you? 
Does he do that in any, in any number of things? He doesn't, does he? Yeah. How about you? Is Christ patient with you, man? Oh, I'd say yes. Big yes. Yeah. Are you patient with your wife? Did Christ sacrifice his life for you, taking full responsibility for your care? Does Christ love you unconditionally no matter what you say or do? Does he always give you messages of love and always tell you over and over and over and over in his word that he'll never leave you, he'll never forsake you? Does he always give you security and communicate messages of love to you? Come on, guys, so eight of you. Yes? You might want to speak up with your wife sitting next to you. Well, that's how you're supposed to love your wife. You know, it's funny. You can get frustrated or dissatisfied or mad even at your wife. And you know what I've learned many, many years ago is that any time that happens to me, which is very, very few times. (laughs) But I find when that happens to me, I find that I, I, I... I start to say this, and I go, okay, I need to get the perspective on this because I don't understand, but I'm a bride, so I, can, I know how Jesus treats me, and so I can understand how my wife would, wanted, would want me to treat her and give her someone that she would feel good about submitting to, even though, ladies, it's regardless. You should be submissive to your husband in everything anyways, even if he's a jerk. But I find when I'm frustrated with my wife about something or I'm, maybe I'm mad at her or dissatisfied about something, I've gotten in the habit of saying, do I do that to you, Lord? Am I doing the same exact thing to you? And usually, I find that it's true. And it's the weirdest thing. It's supernatural. You want to experience supernatural stuff, it doesn't come by somebody laying their hands on you in an apostolic form. That's over. But I'll tell you, you can experience something supernatural because I find that when I correct that with my husband, Jesus Christ, I don't have to say anything to my wife. She just corrects it. Hmm. Yeah. And that strengthens my faith in the Word of God. Ladies, let me ask you a question. Do you submit to every single thing that Jesus Christ asks you to do? I mean, every single... Have you gone through the Bible and laid out everything that he tells you to do, and then you do it? Come on, be honest, do you? Do you? No, I hope nobody said yes. (laughs) And if you did say yes, please come up in the platform and please share this with us. No, of course not. Now, let me ask you another question. Should you? Okay, now there's like three ladies. Should you, ladies? Yeah. Mm. Well, that's how you should submit to your husband. You know what? I feel sorry for you ladies. I always take your side, even even though sometimes, you know, I don't want to. (laughs) But I feel for you. Actually, I'm on God's side. And I do a lot of marital counseling. 
And I feel sorry for you ladies. But you should submit to your husband in everything. Maybe your life would change with him, especially if he's not obeying the word of God. And the Bible says that, by the way, in 1 Peter chapter 3. But husbands, you know, we should be the kind of man that our wives want to submit to. Amen? Amen. Linda? Amen. That's the kind of man I want to be for you, honey. And ladies, you should be submissive to your husbands regardless. Regardless. Now, this comparison causes us to think of other marriages in the Bible because of how he laid it out such as Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel, Ruth and Boaz. Any couple in the Bible, you can examine them and learn about how your marriage should be run by comparison, uh, by likeness or contrast. When they're doing something wrong, you can learn from it. You could examine every marriage in the Bible, and this chapter opens that up because of the use of the word as. Doctrinally, when we see the comparison between Christ and His bride, think about this, we see character types. We're going to talk about types and likenesses and word pictures next week that are incredibly powerful and open up the Bible. But what about Ruth, the bride of Boaz? Boy, she looks a whole lot like the church. If you study that, wow, she's almost a perfect description of us primarily, most of us, as a Gentile, or Solomon's Shulamite Gentile bride in the Song of Solomon, or the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31. We can learn details of what type of bride we should be toward Christ. This passage opens it all up. We're not limited to just what it says here. we got a whole Bible that gives us instruction and teach. Well, you know, that doesn't address my circumstance. Oh, well, let, let's find one that does, and let's see how she responded or he responded. It's all right there because of the words like and as. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed. This is a prophecy that Isaiah prophesied uh, concerning Christ. He, Christ, was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought, say it, as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. And so here we have a description of Christ before his accusers as a lamb. Listen, uh, you study lambs and you learn about Jesus Christ, uh, how he was when he went to the cross, and also uh, before his accusers. You just, all you got to do is study lambs. It's incredible. Uh, was it you that sent me that video on lambs, Ed? wasn't somebody who sent me a video on lambs about a year ago they've left our church they're no longer here <laughs> i mean i watched that thing and i couldn't believe it it was nothing had nothing to do with god or the bible and it had everything to do with god and the bible everything every detail it was unbelievable Listen, he didn't defend himself or make a ruckus when he was standing before uh, his accusers. He was sheepish. He went willingly to the cross, sheepishly. 
He's our example for suffering while trusting God the Father completely. Not my will, but thine be done. He trusted his Father completely. What an example for us to trust Christ when we're suffering. You can study sheep and learn a great many details of how Jesus Christ went to the cross. You learn a great many details on how to suffer properly in, in, in this world because of that. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. Okay, so this last one is going to just be some homework for you, but you know what? Let's go to uh, Philippians cha- or, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to skip Revelation 2.18. It's a description of Christ's attributes. Eyes like unto a flame of fire. His feet are like fine brass. You figure that one out. How's that? You have fun with that. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll finish here. And I was about to say, well, you got nothing else to do, but we got a whole bunch of teenagers in here going, yeah, we got a lot to do. We want to go to camp. All right. How you all doing? All right. Verse 51, 1 Corinthians. This is the great resurrection chapter in the Bible. And he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. And again, remember, the mysteries of God in the Bible are all revealed for us so we can know the deep things of God. This isn't something we can't know. It's, it's just like any mystery novel or mystery program you watch. You always get the answer at the end. Well, you got Genesis all the way to Revelation. You got the end. You, you, these things are revealed to you. We shall not all sleep, die, but we shall all... He's talking to believers not people in the world in general. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be what? Changed, like Enoch, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead, there it is, sleep, dead, shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be what? change. So watch, for this corruptible, this gross body I got now that sins against God must put on incorruption. Yeah, if it's going to live forever, it's going to have to. And this mortal, that's me, my, my corruptible flesh, must put on immortality. We're going to live forever. Amen. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in what? Victory! Now memorize this because you're going to say it. O death, where is thy sting? You're going to say this one day. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And be, Do you have that hope in you? Then... Verse 58, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And the work of the Lord is to make disciples, to multiply. That's what the Lord did, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. Are you looking forward to that day? Okay, turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to have a little bit of fun. We'll finish on this really cool note since we were it was sobering about husbands and wives. We can all improve in that area, can't we? Well, we can. We have, uh, we have the author that gives us instructions living inside of us with a book that he authored through human instrumentality. All right, now watch this. Uh, chapter 3, verse uh, 
uh, verse 20, For our conversation is in heaven, our manner of life, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We look for Him to return. Uh, we we, we want to live our life in such a way that we are representatives of, of heaven. We, our conversation is actually there. Uh, that's a whole other story. Verse 21, we're looking for Jesus Christ. We're looking, we're looking for Him to come in the sky and rapture us away, are we? Are we? Okay, now watch what's going to happen. We just read about it, who sh- and we saw it back in, in, in Genesis. Who shall change our vile body? Yeah, we sang about that. Then it may be fashioned, what's the next word? Like unto His glorious body. According to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Oh, I got lots of people always ask me, what if somebody dies at sea or is burned or cremated or whatever? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's able to subdue everything unto himself, so don't worry. Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body? Okay, now look over in 1 John. 1 John. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you go Revelation, Jude, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John. Okay. All right, you guys ready? Now watch this. Look in chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Amen. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be what? Like, like, like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath his hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is, as he is pure. So here we have a description of the glorified bodies of raptured saints from the church age. One day we'll be given a brand new body, and it's going to be just like Jesus' glorified body. So you know all we have to do is study His glorified body after He rose from the dead, and that's the kind of body you're going to have. Yay is right. You're going to be able to travel at the speed of thought. Speed of light is slow. It'd take him a long time to get from one end of the universe to another. He travels at the speed of thought. He thinks where he needs to be, and he's there. He materializes through solid walls. Remember that? He can eat, but he doesn't have to. And that's good. (laughs) On both sides. Think about it. Everything he did, we're going to have a body just like his study his body after the resurrection and all the things that happened and it's going to be just the same it's good you're going to have a body like that and think about it we're going to need to be like that we're going to need to have those kind of bodies because according to the bible we're going to be the us in the church age just us just us we're we're unique We're going to be kings and priests unto God for all eternity. So as kings, we're going to be rulers and administrators over the civil matters of His ever-increasing kingdom. Who knows, maybe the things you do on this earth are training for the things you're going to do forever, and if you don't like your job, you'll love it in eternity. Whatever it is. Whatever it is. And we're 
going to be priests, will be priests ministering to God himself, carrying out all sorts of divine duties forever in his loving presence as priests. And so in order to accomplish all that, we're going to need to have a glorified body just like his body. There's only one difference. His is going to be the only one that he chose to keep the scars in. So we could be reminded. The Bible says that in Isaiah 49, I think. So that we're always reminded of his love for us. See, the use of similitudes opens up the Bible and makes it a bigger book. And the use of this method of study also strengthens your faith and can cause you to know and love God more through his words that he wrote to you. We don't worship uh, pages we don't worship the India ink. We don't, we don't worship the, 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 the leather binding, the le- the binding or the leather cover. It's not when we say that. It's the voice of God. It's the, the words of God that resonate in our hearts. And we love those words, and he wants us to love them because Romans 10, 17 says, So then, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And these are just some things that we learn from God's use of similitudes. Just some. Just some. It goes on and on and on and on to illuminate us, giving us details that he doesn't have to give us in volumes and volumes of books. Even the Apostle John, when he was closing out his gospel, said, you know, there's so many things that Jesus did that if you took all the books in the world, they couldn't contain everything. But these are the things that are the most important that he gave us, that John talked about, about Jesus. And it's the same with the Bible. We have the most important things that God meticulously preserved that we can learn everything that we need to know about our life and about godliness. There's not anything that God doesn't answer in his book if you believe it, he'll give you the answers to it. Would you bow your heads?